Hi, I'm Hisham. And I'm Gesser. We're doing something new here at Enterprise. We're starting a new podcast interview series that's a little more long form than what you're used to from making it. We're expanding our repertoire of topics and guests to include policymakers as well as business leaders. We're still trying to figure out what this new thing is and even what we should call it. So we'd love to hear suggestions from you guys. And in keeping with the idea of go big or go home, our first guest of this new series is someone who needs no introduction. Dr. Raniel Mashot. But in case you're new to Egypt or have been living under a rock here for the past 500 years, here are the cliff notes. After completing her PhD in economics, Dr. Rania started her career at the IMF at the tender age of 25, becoming one of the youngest new hires at the institution. She then came back to Egypt where she served as sub-governor for monetary policy at the Central Bank from 2005 to 2016. She was involved in managing every crisis manageable, from the global financial crisis to the events of 2011 and 2013, through to the launch of the economic reform agenda in 2016. She was then called to serve as tourism minister, the first woman to hold the position, by the way, and managed through the E-Trip Tourism Recovery Plan to help bring our tourism numbers back to pre-revolution days. This year, she was tapped to serve as International Cooperation Minister, a job she was getting a feel for until the COVID-19 crisis hit three months later. She's everything you would expect from an ambitious, high-achieving public servant. And she's humble and down-to-earth to boot. This was a really, really fun and enjoyable interview, and frankly, one of my personal favorites. I don't know. I really liked it. What did you think, Gesser? I thought it was pretty great. Uh, it was kind of surprising to hear she stumbled into economics after pursuing uh, computer science and business at school first, you know? I know, right? Without actually meeting her, you get the impression that she was an econ wunderkin from like the age of five or something. Yeah, and I also loved how engaging she was. You know, she turned the interview around on us in the beginning and asked us some questions. And it's uh, kind of a shame that we weren't mic'd up for it. Yeah, I guess that's one for the blooper reel. All right, I think we've teased this enough. Let's get right to the show. Hi, Dr. Anya. How are you? Alhamdulillah. Oh, I can imagine. The crisis management minister. Huh? Every time there's a crisis, the bat signal goes out to Dr. Ronya. Lala, you're doing a really good job. Really amazing work. Um, we're fans, longtime fans. To say that I'm not a little nervous, Shweya, right now is an understatement. <laughs> Does anyone of you remember my four C's? Your what? My four C's. How about you tell us what your four C's are? Pillars of success. Do you know them? No. Then you're not good followers then. <laughs> oh, busted. But so tell us now, tell us right now, what are, the four, what are your four C's? So the four C's are uh, competence, connections, confidence, and charm. Um, I was asked a question when I was leaving um, the IMF the first time in 2005 and coming to Egypt to the central bank. So my colleagues at the IMF were very worried, like, Rania, you're a woman going back to work in Egypt. Uh, that's going to be problematic. And I looked at them and was like, guys, women have been working in Egypt in, in public service for ages. Are you kidding me? I'm not worried about the gender, maybe seniority, because I was very young at the time. And then I told them, but I believe in four C's. And that's when it started. This, so these four You know, you make it sound so simple, but it's a tall order. What is it? Confidence, charm. No, no, no. Uh, they, come, they come in order. So competence okay. is number one. So you have to always focus on being an expert in something, work on it, be known for it, keep on building your knowledge, invest in yourself, your education. So competence is number one. You are as good as much as you know, and as much as you can uh, deliver. So competence is number one. Number two, connections. 
if you're very competent, but you don't have connections, you know, you'll go so far. Today, everybody's connected around the world. When I was in college, we didn't have internet. So now you get connected globally very easily. People will connect you to other more important people if you're competent. That's why competence comes number one. And then confidence. And the confidence is important, but confidence comes when you know your subject matter. So confidence comes from competence because you can come around in an interview or in a meeting as very arrogant. And arrogance happens when you don't know your stuff. And then the fourth one is charm. It's how you deal with people, this emotional intelligence. I've been in situations where I've been the only woman in the room, the youngest in the room, the youngest boss around. And in each circumstance, you have to know how to uh, either create consensus, how to be firm sometimes, how to crack, when to crack a joke. So charm is, is extremely important. It's, it's your demeanor towards those who are around you and, and those in, in different circumstances. So those are the four C's. Can you tell us where those four C's came from? Was there an aha moment to them or were you just through the years? Through the years. Since I was seven years old, I always wanted to have a PhD. <laughs> what? <laughs> yeah. So there goes the competence. Well, my first question was going to be what toy or game you played when you were a kid. And clearly it was a pretend little blackboard and, and a notebook. <laughs> I'll surprise you with the toys that I liked when I was a kid. So when I was a kid, I liked Barbie. I had many Smurfs. Smurfs. Yes. A collector. Uh, yes. I have, you know, Papa Smurf and Smurfette uh, and the different types of Smurfs. I had a book on Smurfs. By the way, I would like to point out Smurfette was also the only woman in the room for a long, long time. So For a long, long time. And she was <laughs> smart. And when you watch the cartoons of the Smurfs, you know, she also stood out. So Smurfs is great. And then, uh, of course, Eteri. Pac-Man was a very big part of growing up. So transition us from the Atari to a PhD in economics. How did that happen? Where'd your love of economics come from? So I also give you a, a shocking reality. So like every kid who's in school, parents come and weigh in which field you should pursue, right? Yeah, we're all nodding here. Yeah, we've all been there. We're all been there. So when I, I finished my high school in 1991 and GCSE, and then I was supposed to go to college. At that time, the Ministry of Education in Egypt said uh, no foreign certificates go to public universities. I wanted to go to political science. My mom and dad were against that. They wanted me to become a physician. They kept on, uh, you know, putting all these stamps on what I can see is like, until they took me to Tib Aswan, for example, okay? And then that year, they decided no foreign certificate is accepted to public schools. So the only place I would go to was the American University in Cairo. And at that time, of course, computer science was big. You know, it was still starting. And then it, being a programmer was supposed to be something great. So my mom and dad pushed me to go into computer science. So I started my, my undergrad career as, an, as a computer science. Of course, I aced my classes, you know, was, my GPA was very high, but then I didn't have a passion for it. So I would do my assignments only. I would not go and like venture and write a program for anything. And I just sat with myself and said, okay, if I graduate today as a computer science, how will I innovate? I will only do the job if my boss tells me that they want this assignment. This is not what I want to do. So, um, the next highest GPA at AUC at the time was business administration. So I spent a semester in, as business. Of course, I aced that as well. 
But then I didn't have passion for business. I'm like, what am I going to do? Am I going to market a product? That's not what I want to do. So then I turned to economics. And one of my dad's very close friends told me, Rania, economics is a, is a, is a, is a discipline, it's a science. Try it out. So Yeah, I, I was wondering, you needed more math? Uh, yeah. <laughs> you, you took economics? Because people don't realize there's a lot of math involved in economics. You don't realize how much math and optimization is in economics until you start your graduate degree. It's interesting that you kind of went from field to field before you landed there. So I spent two years as a computer scientist, one semester as business administration, and one and a half years as economics. And, and during my studies of economics at AUC, of course, we had the fantastic professor, Bilal Amin, who taught us development economics, uh, taught us about uh, multilateralism and how uh, different partners of development help countries or don't help countries. And then we had, of course, Professor Adil Bishay, who taught us international economics. Uh, and that's where you, you see comparative advantage of countries and how one country can stand out and how there's complementarity. So really multilateralism, as we think about it today, was sort of shaped in my mind. Would you say they are the two biggest influences in the field of development for you? Uh, as an undergrad, there were others as a grad. And also in my undergraduate experience, I had done a summer internship at the Economic Research Forum, which was head by Dr. Hiba Handusa at the time. So she's also a, a great role model for me. So I think the three of them really shaped my passion for economics and the idea of you can do so much good uh, by pursuing higher education in, in economics. I want to get to the third C, the confidence. You joined the IMF at 25. You're one of the youngest new hires. What was it like being an Egyptian economist, like going to basically the HQ of the global economy? Before joining the IMF as an economist in 2001, when I was 25, it was doing a summer internship at the IMF in 1998. I was the youngest summer intern. I was 22 years old. And that was the year of... Uh, the Russian crisis. And the deputy managing director of the IMF at the time was Stanley Fisher. Stanley Fisher, of course, is the guru of macroeconomics. And to be a summer intern doing your PhD uh, at the IMF and sit in a room with uh, Stan Fisher and the chief economist of the World Bank at the time was the great Joseph Stiglitz. Wow, you know? So these are the people you read about and you, you studied their books because you're going to be examined. And then suddenly you're part of this world. You're sitting on a table, you're debating, you're discussing the banking crisis, financial systems. So this was 1998 was fantastic. Um, to all our young listeners, can you tell them how do you land a dream internship like that? Well, to do an internship at the IMF or the World Bank, you have to be an ABD. ABD is all but dissertation. So you have to be a PhD student. You go through a very tough screening process. And then when I joined in 2001 as an economist, when you asked me how was it being the youngest or an economist from the Middle East, you know, when I joined the IMF, they basically put you in different departments for two years. That's the economist program. One department is an area department. So you, you, you cover a certain area, whether it's Latin America, Africa, or the Middle East. And then the second year, you do a functional department. You do monetary or fiscal or financial markets. So when I first started, they said, we want you to join the Middle East Department. And I told them, if I join the Middle East Department, I will not accept the offer from the IMF. I am an economist who happens to be Egyptian, who happens to be from the region. It's not because I speak Arabic, I end up in the Middle Eastern Department. So that was the condition you I You didn't want to be boxed in. Exactly. Based on your background. Okay. Exactly. So that's very important that I said, as my background, my credentials qualify me 
to join any department. And I, I wanted to make sure that I was not put in the department necessarily just because I spoke the language or so on. So that was a little episode at the beginning. Um, and then it's fantastic to be among very smart colleagues, very well-educated colleagues. But at the same time, you have to also stand out and have a comparative advantage. Well, clearly you made enough of an impression to rise and then you joined the central bank after your time at the IMF as a sub-governor for monetary policy and really around some of the most interesting times economically for Egypt. You were there from 2005, 2016. That's a long time. Did you miss Egypt? You know, I, I wrote a chapter called Playing a Public Policy Role Within the Government. And this is in a book called Daughters of the Nile. Uh, Egyptian Women Changing Their World. And, and in that chapter, I explain how this journey was, was shaped up. So at the age of seven, I wanted to get my PhD because I wanted to play a public policy role and be influential in the, in the country. And it, it comes from uh, being brought up in a home that invited academicians and, 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 and public figures. And uh, my father used to be very active uh, writing articles and being on TV and radio and so forth. And, and to So me, your family was involved in public service very early on. Yes. And the thing is that, you know, as a child, you see that these people are at your home at night having dinner. And then suddenly the next day, everybody's listening to what they say. And it's like, what is common between all these people so that they have so much clouds and so much uh, aura, if you will. And the one thing that was common among all of them is that each one of them was a PhD holder. And to me, growing up, having that license in hand gave you that credibility to be able to contribute to your country uh, from a point of knowledge and from an educated and intellectual point of view. So basically, you wanted to take that experience and what you've learned on your PhD and IMF in service of your country. Yeah. So always the education, the working, of course, in one of the biggest financial institutions globally that works on public policy were all means towards the final end, which is how do you use and utilize all of that to serve? The reason why I brought up your time as sub-governor is the pretty much you decide to go into public service right as the country is going through a major economic transformation. Um, can you please just tell our people who are just too young to remember um, just how far into the economic abyss we were staring at from like 2011 to 2016 and how far we've improved? Uh, I joined the, the Central Bank of Egypt in uh, August 2005. And this was a time when, you know, people from outside the public institutions could actually join in and provide contributions. So I was very happy to be given the opportunity to uh, join the central bank. Um, monetary policy and public debt management uh, were part of my PhD thesis and to be given the responsibility to shape Egypt's monetary policy as part of the uh, reform program at the central bank was, of course, a great opportunity uh, and really an honor. Uh, between 2005 and 2008, many reforms took place. Then suddenly we were hit by the global financial crisis in 2008. But because uh, the central bank had done a lot of work uh, at the time, Egypt entered the global financial crisis with a very strong footing. And then after that, uh, events of 2011 happened. But because the central bank had so much credibility, you know, if you compare this transition to other countries in Eastern Europe, which faced bank runs and people, you know, not believing in it, this was not the case in Egypt. And the lesson learned here is that uh, reforms are a continuous process. Reforms keep on happening. 
And the only, uh, and there's very nice quote that was mentioned by the previous managing director of the IMF, you reform when the, you, you fix the roof when the sunshine is up, which means that in good times, in tranquil times, you should not, you know, stop uh, the wheel of reform because that comes to help you later. Uh, when things become uh, quite difficult, whether for global circumstances, domestic circumstances. The world we live in today and COVID has shown us that uh, things can change pretty fast, unexpectedly, and for reasons beyond anyone's control. So the lesson here is constantly shoot for reform. That way, when a crisis hits, you're actually ready to take it on. Absolutely. Reform all the time. Was that the philosophy you took with you when you then moved to the tourism ministry? So after 11 years at the Central Bank of Egypt, I went as uh, advisor to the chief economist of the IMF. There, I was uh, helping countries operationalize their monetary policy and financial stability reforms. So this was very important. That So for almost two years, I was, I was working on that and contributed to a very important book at the IMF called Advancing the Frontiers of Monetary Policy, where we operationalize uh, how you mesh between theory and practice when it comes to implementing, designing frameworks related to monetary policy and macroprudential uh, and financial stability uh, principles. And then I, I received a call where I was called to come back to Cairo and be sworn in as Minister of Tourism. How daunting was that call? Because that was not a good ministry to have at that time. Tourism is a very important sector globally. And these are facts that I did not know before becoming Minister of Tourism. Before COVID, tourism represented 10% of global GDP and 30% of exports and services and one in every 10 jobs. So the global impact is huge. I did not know this. And then, of course, as an Egyptian, we are always very proud, like all Egyptians, that we have 30% of the world's heritage, that we pride ourselves with Mediterranean, the Red Sea, and so on. The industry started in Egypt. Yeah, but the bolts and knots of the sector itself and the industry were very foreign to me. Of course, I did not know all the details. So, of course, when I got that call, I was surprised. It sounded a bit, you know, counterintuitive, but... The justification that was given to me was this is an important part of Egypt's GDP and we want it to be run with an economic model in mind. So, uh, you know, I wasn't given much time. I mean, I, I literally was called on Thursday. I was sworn in on Sunday, January 14th. Uh, this was a situation where, you're, you know, you kind of went in and had to sort of rebuild, no? Like you guys developed the tourism recovery plan. Uh, you guys wrote up the new legislation, set up all of the stuff with the, a potential private equity fund. It was your team, correct, that kind of pushed that along? Or did you pick up a reform strategy that was already in place for tourism? Something very important to note whenever you take a new job, you have to take a bit of time to understand, and this is an economic term, the initial condition. Characterizing the initial condition of any situation, whether it's an economic situation, a ministerial situation, an industry situation, is very, very important. And in characterizing this initial condition, you are uh, looking at uh, the industry details, you are identifying the stakeholders, you are identifying the potential, your partners internally, externally. And as I was mentioning, I was sworn in in 2018, Egypt was more than halfway through its uh, economic reform program with the IMF. And reform programs have monetary policy, fiscal policy, and structural reforms. 
structural reforms are always done on a sectoral level. And I applied structural reforms in the tourism sector. And that's where the ETRIP came into play. ETRIP is the Egypt Tourism Reform Program. And it has a vision, it has an overarching objective, and it has identified pillars of reform uh, that are all published and was launched from parliament and stakeholders were involved. I don't want to dwell too much on this. This is all on record and has been disseminated. But, you know, we were very fortunate uh, that we were able to, you know, exactly fulfill the mandate that I was called to, which is deal with this important sector from an economic perspective. So I'm very proud that I was able to do that. All right, I think now's a good time for a quick break. Enterprise is the proud publisher of Making It, our weekly show on building a great business right here in Egypt. We have some exciting guests lined up for season three coming this fall. You can get a taste of Making It by listening to seasons one and two right now. We're trying to build a better Siri. This is something in the hands of potentially billions of people. Like, I mean, imagine a Jarvis that can do anything. Like this is like some Iron Man stuff. We don't want anyone to come in and uh, feel relaxed. They can boss people around and do very little. We need people that want to work, want to work hard. I don't want to lead forever. Then we need to figure out a way where it lives beyond the family. At the time, people stopped asking me, how are you? Really? Because they, they, assumed, they, they assumed that we were like heading off a cliff. And in fact, we were standing very close to the cliff. Listen to seasons one and two of Making It on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or on our website, enterprise.press. That's enterprise.press. And then we get to the lecture at hand, MOIC, the Ministry of International Cooperation. Can you please tell us what does it do for the Egyptian citizen? Okay, so the Ministry of International Cooperation basically deals with all international, multilateral, and bilateral development partners for Egypt. What does that mean? It means that in the multilateral setting that I spoke about early on, how do you position a country within an economic uh, sphere? The shorthand for it is economic diplomacy. Um, All of us know that all countries, when uh, growing and when creating development plans, You either do that from your own resources or you partner uh, with the private sector or you partner with international institutions. So the Ministry of International Cooperation covers the part of doing uh, or engaging in projects for the country, whether sovereign projects, public-private partnership projects, or private sector projects with international institutions. So if we are doing a transportation project as a country, we try and figure out what is the best way to finance that project. And so there's a menu of ways. You can go to the international markets. You can go to a domestic bank. You can go and partner with an international institution such as the World Bank. And this is a national project we're talking about, or can it be a a business? It can be a private company. Absolutely. Because there are institutions international institutions that we deal with as Ministry of International Cooperation that only provide financing to the private sector, such as IFC, for instance. They bet on countries that are doing reforms and countries where the private sector can actually be vibrant and contribute uh, in a positive way and actually pay back whatever financing they get. So it, it has to be a viable project. 
So that's why as much as we do work for the sovereign projects, we do work for the public-private partnership projects, and we also support the projects uh, for the private sector that create financing from international institutions. Also, it's not just international institutions, it's also bilateral. So for example, uh, if we're talking about our relationship with Germany, our relationship with uh, France, our relationship with Switzerland, many of these countries also reach out and try to invest in small and medium enterprises. So we try and match that and twin that. So the ministry is always constantly engaged in trying to come up with either bilateral cooperation agreements or multilateral cooperation agreements when it comes to what we now term globally as financing for development. So financing for development is a term, if you look it up, uh, it means that until 2030, all countries around the world are expected to invest and finance different sustainable development goals. There are 17 sustainable development goals globally, and they range from overcoming hunger, overcoming poverty, equality for gender, innovation and infrastructure, clean energy, wa- you know, life underwater, partnership, uh, health and well-being. There are 17, and I, I hope uh, those who are following us look up the 17 sustainable development goals, which have become even more important after COVID because they affect us as individuals. So you guys do more than just bring in money. You actually connect us to the global economy through cooperation and also try and line up the funding to move us towards sustainable development. Absolutely. And and something else which is very, very important that the ministry does is we create a multi-stakeholder platform. What does that mean? It means that if I want to do an electricity project for renewable energy, okay, so I can have more than one partner for development with us in fulfilling that goal. And that creates a fantastic Example And let me talk about the Bin Band project in Aswan, for instance, considered to be an exemplary project for the IFC. It is a, a public-private partnership, and it started by a legislative reform, a structural reform that the Ministry of Electricity did to allow uh, for... The feed-in tariff. Absolutely. That was followed by the ability of private sector firms to go to our international partners of development get the financing, and now we have one of the biggest and most impressive uh, renewable energy projects in Africa and the Middle East. So this is just an example of how you are able to mobilize. You've translated the electricity ministry's long-term goals into actionable items, which you can then get funding for. There's very important collaboration that happens between the Ministry of International Cooperation and line ministries. You can go to the international markets, you can borrow from domestic banks, You can uh, get a loan from the government or you can uh, go and do uh, get your financing through what we call development financing, which is through international partners, international financial institutions or bilateral cooperation, as I mentioned. And this is where the MOIC comes in on that last part. So there's an array of financing sources. We tackle one of the financing sources. We try to do it. It has to be done in collaboration with the line ministry. Because the line ministry has all of these options in front of it. So we try and help it uh, get the development financing it needs with terms and conditions which are quite conducive. It also creates a very important development story for the country. Uh, So we try and tie in our SDG objectives, our development objectives, align them with what the multilateral... Let uh, me just then step in and ask, what are the sustainable development goals 
and why should businesses care about them? You know, in, in the world today, all corporates, governments are very much, I don't want to say obsessed by SDGs, but are required to think about them seriously because these are common denominators uh, across countries, common denominators across corporates. So you'll find that different corporates now want to, for example, cut their carbon print to be climatically friendly, to ensure that plastic is not used. There's now the concept of ESG. ESG is environment, sustainability, and governance. So all of these terms refer back to or have at the core of them the 17 sustainable development goals that were agreed through multilateral you know, engagement under the United Nations. So, so these are economic, socioeconomic, uh, even cultural principles that are easy to understand because they affect individuals on a daily basis. They are also very easy to integrate in terms of goals, because each project that you do is either going to be related to environment, to poverty, to equality, to innovation, to infrastructure, to cities, to renewable energy. So there's always everything that you do today is going to have a link to these SDGs. So what is very important for us as we're designing projects, as we're designing uh, financing structures what is at the fore or what we think about uh, in detail are how are these SDGs going to be accomplished? Uh, and that is for, you know, improving the welfare of the people. Because at the end of the day, if you are engaging in a health project, then it's well-being and health that you are tackling. On the grand scheme of things, a lot of these goals seem, at least to the average person, like too far-fetched, too out of reach, Um I wanted to ask you, with all of these goals that you're trying, how do you measure success at MOIC? So we've been, or I've been at the ministry here for six months now. And of course, three months of them have been Corona tainted, if you will. But what we want to do is the following. We want to document all the projects uh, that Egypt has so far been engaged in with our development partners in the context of SDGs. So we have in the past uh, five years, around $25 billion of projects, 247 projects across the 17 SDGs. So we want to do a proper accounting so that people can see these $25 billion, not just as a dollar value, but as you mentioned it precisely as an impact value. And that's why P and P and P is our narrative. That is people at the core, projects in action, and purpose as the driver. And it is very important that we disseminate this information because we want to create that awareness. We want you, me, my cousin, my neighbor, all of us to know what these 17 SDGs are and why a water desalination project is going to be important for you here in Cairo, even though it's a water desalination project, which is in Sinai, for instance, or in Port Said. So trying to create uh, the awareness of what SDGs are, the awareness of how projects that we uh, help finance integrate SDGs in the financing model uh, are extremely important. They're important because these have taken place already. Uh, they are important because they show the collaboration between the government and the private sector and the international community. They push forward in our, you know, currently we have a lot of projects in the pipeline and when we announce them, we will announce them under the umbrella of P and P and P. So it becomes, as you exactly mentioned, more relevant to the individual rather than just see a number and a plan. 
how do you prioritize action items for that? What are the MOIC's priorities in terms of like timeline stages? And then obviously I want to know how has that changed? How does that calculus change since COVID-19? Egypt has launched its 2030 vision. Uh, this is the government vision for how the SDGs are going to be prioritized. Uh, the updated version uh, was supposed to come up in April, and now it's being you know, revisited in light of COVID. Uh, but what I can say is that uh, there are some projects today which we have been uh, engaging in because of their importance. They are related to health. They are related to renewable energy, transportation because of connectivity. Uh, and, of course, the uh, space of private sector and SMEs. So all of these are going to help the recovery, reshape the recovery. Uh, so, for example, just recently, universal health insurance uh, is something that uh, the Ministry of Finance is doing with the World Bank. That's going to affect a lot of people in the country. Uh, when we talk about uh, transportation, because of connectivity and how uh, that is infrastructure uh, that would allow for uh, more growth. Uh, renewable energy because of the new firms that would come up and the needs for uh, more energy uh, generation, but clean energy generation. So these are just examples. But what's the priorities today? Today, you, Dr. Rania, you walk into the office. What's your agenda? What's the first SDG that we have to tackle or sustainable development goal that we have to tackle now in the midst of the crisis? All of them. Where are we starting, though? The important thing to me today is to make sure that on the global stage, Egypt is not overlooking its SDGs commitments and what it wants out of the SDGs. Okay. So we're trying to make sure that those don't slip. That, that is uh, one of the risks that have been identified post-COVID by everyone. Everyone just, you know, open up and see what the world is talking about. Everyone is worried that because of the attention on how to mitigate COVID and so forth, that these important goals and the importance of uh, financing these goals uh, would be overlooked. And that's why when I come to the office every day, I engage with line ministries, I engage with international partners to ensure that we continue moving ahead uh, with our uh, agenda that will not only help the recovery uh, in the period uh, going forward, but also help reshape the economy. And they're not ranked in any particular way. You just have to deal with them all at once. For example, the socioeconomic impact from COVID, the impact on the vulnerable groups, that is definitely a priority. Take a look at making sure that the small and medium enterprises are not going to be left out because they are an engine of growth. That is something that is considered to be a priority now. To make sure that the health element is taken into account, that is a priority. So SMEs are an immediate priority. Absolutely, because the job generation and the job creation, you know, the, the, the only thing that COVID has done really, in my view, is to push governments to think fast, do reforms very quickly in order to mitigate the impact. So in some sense, as devastating as it has been, it has also basically created a little bit of an expedited reform agenda. Mm, that's very interesting. So would you say that's one of the positives that came out of the crisis? I call it not a positive, but a silver lining. Um, so then my question is, on a holistic level, are we still on track to meet our sustainable development goals by 2030? Or has that changed the timeline? What COVID has done for all of us, it has really put a lot of strain on our time horizons because of uh, how things are very fast moving. But the thing is that everything we do today is to ensure that we don't overlook uh, our SDG agenda. 
So we're very, we're very committed to that. We work very closely with line ministries. We work very closely with international partners. Uh, we create a narrative which is well articulated, well understood. And hopefully, because we're just starting this new narrative, it will be disseminated so that you, your colleagues, your neighbors, your mom, your dad will also understand the PMPMP. The, you said the ministry has made SMEs and women-led businesses a, a major priority. Uh, beyond the credit initiatives that the CBE has done and beyond the tax relief initiative by the finance ministry, what else is the government doing to help these businesses out? And specifically MOIC. So, for instance, most recently, uh, there have been credit lines from EIB, the European Investment Bank, from EBRD, uh, and from IFC to banks in Egypt to give loans and credit to small and medium enterprises and the private sector. This is, you know, the efforts that we've been pushing on that agenda. Also, uh, the ministry has a uh, half a stake in an entrepreneurship company. So we are also pushing the agenda and have put more money into investments related to uh, startups and so forth. And, you know, in July, we're going to come out with all the efforts that we have done to basically not only tackle SMEs, but other priority sectors in the economy. We also recently also received facilities from the EBRD and the IFC and other multilaterals. So how will then that funding be deployed? If you follow our press releases, you will see that for each project, the details are announced. So for example, most recently with the African Development Bank, there has been a project related to electricity. With the AFD, there has been a project related to transportation and railroads. When you take a look at EIB, EBRD, and IFC, there have been facilities and credit lines to the banks in Egypt for SMEs and businesses. So it's been a very multi-sectoral approach, and it goes to, as I mentioned, either specific projects with line ministries or uh, also uh, certain private sector projects. So the IFC, in addition to uh, some of these bank lines, uh, for instance, most recently there has been funding that has gone to uh, one of the very important glass companies in the country. And uh, uh, similarly with, with EBRD, they have also helped in other private sector projects. So in your dealings with a lot of these institutions, and you're in constant talks with them, I am assuming. Um, how confident are they in Egypt's ability to recover from the crisis? How have they scored our response? And what are the questions that you've been getting from them? What are they asking about Egypt? Well, I mean, that's a very good question. And if you take a look at projections by international institutions on growth in the region, uh, Egypt stands out as one of the countries that will continue growing positively. And the engagement from international partners is testament that they are betting on the future. And they are betting on, as I mentioned, a government that is committed to reforms uh, and will continue moving forward, not just to ensure a recovery, but also help reshape the economy through, uh, you know, the sectoral approach of looking at uh, different different important projects that are tied to the SDGs. Um, yeah, I only I, part of the reason why I asked this question as well is because a lot of them have kind of downgraded our GDP growth prospects for this year and next year. Obviously, this is all over the world. It's not just us. Um, but What this crisis has shown is that there's no country that stands out, right? Everybody is affected. And the IMF just came out with their uh, July uh, World Economic Outlook. Yeah, they said we're uh, 
2% growth through the end of 2020. We are the only country in the Middle East that has positive growth. That is very true. And everyone else, if you take a look at advanced economies, the contraction is a minus 8%. If you take a look at emerging markets, it's minus 5%. And this was a down, you know, a revised downward projection. So all we're saying is that this is not an easy crisis. It's called the great lockdown for, for good reason. And that's why our story, hopefully, will be one that stands out. Oh, there goes the bat signal. Duty called and Dr. Rania had to step out. We wanted to ask her more on the sustainable development goals and specifically how the world is failing at them and how Egypt might succeed at them. We also wanted to pick her PhD economist brain for a bit to see how COVID-19 may have impacted the reform agenda and what a post-COVID-19 Egyptian economy would look like. Hopefully we get a chance to bring her back on and maybe the second time around could be in person. <laughs> 